And Merry Christmas to all of you. Actually, more people than I expected on a Christmas morning, but it's good to see each one of you celebrate this great day together. For nearly 2,000 years now, Christians have been celebrating Christmas in one form or another, and uh, it's, uh, as far as we can tell, not going to stop anytime soon. I can see us celebrating this for approximately 10 million, 100 million more years, and then that's a good start, and then we'll keep going from there. So it's a great, uh, it's a great celebration uh, that we can be part of this morning. So Merry Christmas to all of you. Bringing a Christmas message is always a bit of a challenge. It's a story that most of us know so well, and yet I trust it's a story that never grows old. So let's look once again at the miraculous story of the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. Let's lay some foundations before we look at the Christmas story, do our reading. Um, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So the first foundation we'll lay is this. There are four Gospels or ancient biographies of Jesus given to us in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I believe they were written in that order. Uh, I haven't always believed that, but I've changed my mind. I used to think that Mark was first and Matthew came after, but um, I, I, anyway, I, I actually think they were written in the, in the order Matthew, Mark, then Luke, then John. Um, and I think that each writer was aware of the previous writer's work. So Matthew would have written first, Mark would have uh, written after Matthew, being aware of what he had done and listening to Peter's sermons. Uh, Luke would have wanted to add um, his history, and then finally, many years later, the Apostle John, writing his account. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, are called the Synoptic Gospels because they record much of the same stories of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus with a smattering of unique uh, stories in each one. John, who wrote later, wrote his gospel with a very different goal, and he filled in some unique stories and sayings that aren't included anywhere else in the gospels. The second foundation I'd like to lay down is that only two of the gospels talk about the conception and birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Matthew's Christmas story, generally speaking, gives us more of uh, Joseph's point of view, whereas Luke's account gives us more of Mary's point of view. We're pretty sure that uh, Luke actually sought out Mary, the mother of Jesus, and interviewed her so that he could write those first few chapters. Uh, so what we're getting there in, in many ways, very likely, is sort of the, the, the conception and birth of Jesus according to Mary. So that's, that's always a, a special time when you're in the book of Luke. Mark and John, on the other hand, they begin their records of the earthly life of Christ uh, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry at his baptism by John. Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, had the initial primary audience as the Jewish people, whereas Luke was a Gentile physician, and he wrote mostly for a Gentile audience, in particularly a man named Theophilus. And maybe that's why, as a Gentile, I've always been somewhat partial to the Christmas story given to us in the Gospel of Luke. For me, it was almost automatic. If I was going to do a Christmas message, I would flip to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, not this morning. I went to Matthew, and I'll tell you why. Matthew's Gospel takes special care 
to present Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, promised by God through the ages, who would come through the line of Abraham and further on through the line of King David. God had not spoken a word for 400 years, and many of the Jewish people were eagerly anticipating the coming of Messiah because the time was drawing near, which was spoken of 600 years earlier by the prophet Daniel, who gave the very uh, specific year that the Messiah was going to come and some of the things that he was going to do. Then, after those four centuries of silence from heaven, Matthew opens his gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew then gives us a genealogy of Jesus beginning at Abraham through King David and down through Joseph, the legal, although not the biological, father of the Lord. So let's pick up the reading in Matthew chapter 1. We just read the first verse. We'll pick up the reading in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. This is the holy word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning as we celebrate one of the greatest events that ever took place, and that was when you chose in your grace and your mercy and your love to enter our condition so long ago through the womb of Mary, we are of all people most blessed to have this truth in front of us, to have this truth in our hearts. And so this morning, as we look at um, the man briefly that was the earthly father of Jesus, help us to keep our eyes on the center of the story, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and how he humbled himself for us. Help us not to be too proud to humble ourselves before his throne this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just look at how Matthew constructs the early chapters of his gospel. He introduces Jesus as the Messiah, the promised seed of Abraham, and the rightful king of Israel through the line of David. Then he describes how the baby Jesus is delivered from the hand of Herod. Joseph and Mary are instructed to flee to Egypt for safety, 
Why did God send them to Egypt? Could he have not protected Jesus without his parents fleeing to Egypt? Then upon the death of Herod, Jesus' family returns to Judea, but they're still not safe. Then immediately, Matthew skips over several decades and he picks up the story of Jesus' baptism, immediately after which Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted. The Jews reading Matthew's account would immediately have seen all the parallels to the great story of their national deliverance. It was done purposely by Matthew. The Exodus, he is outlining the Exodus for the people, outlining it for his people, for his readers. So upon reflection, since we have been going through the book of Exodus, I hope you too can now see the relationships between Herod and Pharaoh, the sojourn in Egypt, coming through the waters of baptism and the Red Sea crossing, the beginnings of the wilderness journey, 40 years for the Hebrews, 40 days for Jesus. But then Matthew records that where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus had victory. Matthew's construction of his gospel is a miracle, drawing his Jewish audience into the great story of the Messiah. I hope it does the same for you and I this morning. So due to Matthew's relationship with the Exodus, and because we are currently going through the book of Exodus, we'll take our Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We are going to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph this morning. By the way, quick question for you. How many of Joseph's words are recorded in Scripture? Mike has two fingers up? No. <laughs> Big zero. We don't have a single word ever uttered by the Lord's earthly father in Scripture. <clears throat> um, another question. If you were to choose a word other than the word just, and I'll let you shout out. We'll be Pentecostal here for the next three minutes or so. I'll let you shout out a word. If you were to choose one word to describe Joseph, other than the word just, because Matthew uses the word just in verse 19 of today's scripture, what word would you use to describe Joseph from what we know about him in scripture? Faithful, obedient, humble, thoughtful, hardworking, sensitive. Law-abiding? Good. We'll even we'll look at that too, actually. Specific. Pardon? Trusting. Trusting. So we like Joseph, don't we? He doesn't utter a single word. We just get God's we just get God's description of this, this man, and 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 God paints for us a picture of a of a good man, a strong but gentle man. The kind of man that God might want to be a father to his son when his son would come. I think we can learn some lessons from his life. With every effort to keep on focus, our focus on Jesus, let us look at five different attributes. Some of you kids are going, five? Pastor Steve only does three. We're going to be here forever. I'll try to make them quick. 
We're going to look at five different attributes of Joseph from this passage, and then we're going to look at what lesson we can learn from that attribute of Joseph, keeping our eyes on the Savior. The first thing that we'll look at, one of the attributes of Joseph, is that he was a Jew. And what we can learn from Joseph being a faithful Jew is what it looks like to be a willing vessel for answered prayer. The people of Israel had been praying for Messiah to come for centuries. And those prayers only intensified as the people were being increasingly subject to the harsh yoke of Roman rule. With the prophecy of Daniel in the backs of their minds, telling the Jews that the appearing of the Messiah was right at the door, right at the threshold, there was somewhat of a Messiah fever uh, occurring in Judea around the time of Jesus. Ancient historians claim that there were uh, up to a dozen and maybe even 20 different men that came onto the scene claiming to be the Messiah right around this time. And all of them gained varying degrees of popular following as they promised to overthrow the power of Rome, but all of them came to the same end. They were killed by the Romans and their followers and movements were quashed. We know very few of their names and even less about them today, save one. I think if we can put ourselves into the sh shoes of the sandals, of the average Jew of the first century, we can more deeply appreciate the opening words of the gospel according to Matthew. So all of these pretenders were coming, but Matthew puts pen to paper and says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In essence, Matthew was saying, not just anybody that claims to be Messiah is qualified. Matthew was saying things about the Messiah from scriptures and telling us that Jesus meets the criteria. The first condition is Messiah's lineage. He must be Jewish of the seed of Abraham, and he must be a descendant of King David. And so, to begin with in Matthew's gospel, Jesus checks both boxes. Let's look at the relationship a little bit between Joseph and Mary. Many of us have heard little children tease one another with these words. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. There's some truth in these words, and our society would be a lot better off if we kept this order intact. In Jesus' time and culture, the marriage arrangement looked a little different, and the older I get, the more I appreciate it. There were, in general, three steps to the marriage covenant. First step was engagement. This was generally arranged by the parents, often while the couple was still quite young. Engagements could be broken off without too much fuss. I mean, maybe people would move away, would be like, well, it's not going to work between my son and your daughter, so... And we'll just call that off and we'll try and make other arrangements. So that was the engagement arranged by parents. The second step was betrothal. And this made the previous engagement binding. During the time of betrothal, the couple were known as husband and wife. 
and a betrothal could only be broken by a divorce. Betrothal typically lasted one year or thereabouts while the groom prepared a home for his bride. And then the final step was marriage. This was the final stage of the covenant, celebrated by a wedding and the final uniting of the couple. So you had engagement, betrothal, finally marriage, and that was till death do them part. In today's reading, Joseph and Mary are betrothed. So they're in stage two. They were probably promised to one another for a long time before this, maybe 10 years, we don't know. Uh, but they had made the formal agreement to enter betrothal. They were now considered husband and wife, although they were living apart, and Joseph was probably in the preparation, uh, getting, getting a place prepared for Mary to move in after their wedding uh, celebration. And, uh, and he finds out that Mary is pregnant. Matthew gives no description of how the child came to be conceived in Mary's womb. No description is needed. He simply says that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. C.H. Spurgeon said in one of his sermons, there was no other way of his being born. For had he been of a sinful father, how should he have possessed a sinless nature? He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. We should consider what a great trial this was for a godly young couple like Mary and Joseph. Their situation was the most distressing and humiliating that could have been conceived at that time. The Bible says nothing about the heartache experienced by both Mary and Joseph through this time. But it doesn't take much imagination to know something of their pain. I mentioned earlier that the Jewish people had been praying for a Messiah and eagerly anticipating one that was to come. We can be sure that both Mary and Joseph made this part of their daily prayers as well. Come, Messiah. But I'm sure they never imagined what it might cost them. The answer to their prayers, as much as it was a blessing for the whole world, would cost Joseph and Mary their reputations, their friends, their families, their home, and any chance they may have had of ever living a quiet, peaceable, normal life. Many of us in here have also prayed for God to do something in our lives, maybe in our families, <clears throat> maybe in our societies, our country, our world. But what price are we willing to pay to see God's mighty hand work in response to our prayers? I'm not saying that when God moves, it will always cost you something. Often, maybe most of the time, God answers prayers by his perfect grace, and we receive blessings from his hand at no cost to us whatsoever. But how seriously do we actually desire what we are praying for if we are not willing to give up something to see our prayers answered? Joseph and Mary prayed and prayed and prayed for Messiah, 
And even when they realized what it was going to cost them, they submitted. Maybe you are praying for a new job. But you are hoping God just drops it into your lap rather than going out and actively pursuing something new. How much do you want that job if you're not willing to go out and try for it? Maybe you are praying for the salvation of a family member, friend. But you are not willing to tell that person about Jesus or study the Bible so that you might answer some questions or doubts that they might have. How much do you really want the salvation of that person's soul if you're not prepared to open your mouth in witness to them or to dig into Scripture to know the mind of God? Those things for which we pray ought to be precious enough for us to at least make some sacrifice that God can use to bring about his answer to our plea, like Joseph. Joseph, as a Jew, was praying for Messiah to come. But in his case, he had to live out the faith that he had in his heart. He was asked to be a vessel of God, even a vessel of dishonor. And he was willing. Number two, they're not all that long. Joseph was a just man. And what I'd like us to learn from this is that love is greater than law. What does it mean to be a just man? As the Bible says of Joseph in today's passage, well, I can tell you from the authority of God's word in our passage that it does not mean that you seek to live by and enforce the law down, pardon me, to its minutest details, no matter the cost. Today's passage says that because Joseph was a just man, he sought to deal with the seriousness of Mary's situation as quietly and as privately as possible, not seeking retribution or vengeance. Joseph was just, not because he did exactly as the letter of the law outlined, but because he saw the spirit of the law and showed tenderness and mercy to Mary, who, as far as he knew at this point, had betrayed him. Can you not almost see the gentleness and meekness and immense strength of Joseph's character in his response in verse 19? It is no wonder God chose Joseph to be the earthly father of his only begotten son. Here was a just man who, regardless of the pain and betrayal he was experiencing, was willing to show love and mercy even to those by whom he believed he was betrayed. Is that not a small picture of what Jesus was? And he got the example from his earthly father and his heavenly father. Don't believe yourself to be just, just because you keep every jot and tittle of every rule. That makes you no more just than a well-programmed robot. 
Those who are truly just live a life of love, mercy, tenderness, kindness, gentleness, meekness, and moral strength. Not only in response to kindness, but even in response to the most painful betrayal. In your personal relationships, if you must err, err on the side of tenderness. Joseph was a gentle soul. And here, the lesson we can learn is the power of God's revelation. Verse 20 says that the angel visits Joseph while he was thinking of these things. I doubt there was much time during which Joseph wasn't thinking of these things. Joseph was understandably troubled by Mary's mysterious pregnancy, his own future, as well as Mary's future. And then he receives a revelation from God. The angel tells Joseph that Mary has conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was in a time of deep distress. He needed a revelation from the Lord to put his fears to rest. Nothing else would do that. Joseph knew that, naturally speaking, women don't have babies all by themselves. Naturalistically, Joseph's situation seemed hopeless without God revealing the truth to him. Perhaps this Christmas, you too have a hopelessly difficult situation that you are facing. When you lie down to sleep, there it is. When you wake up, there it is. It may be that, naturalistically speaking, your situation is hopeless. Maybe it's your finances, or wayward children, or a cancer diagnosis, or a failed marriage, or an addiction that oppresses you. I don't know. Like Joseph, you need a revelation from God to bring you peace. It is unlikely that an angel will visit you in a dream and give you the light you need to see your way ahead. But we are more blessed than that because in our hands, we have the complete revelation of God. It is his supernatural divine message for us when all natural explanations fail. The word of God brings comfort like nothing else can, as it did to Joseph. And then an angel tells Joseph, you're going to call his name Jesus. The name Jesus was actually pretty common around that time. But it was a special name chosen by God for his son. And it means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. The angelic messenger tells Joseph that the child shall be given this name. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. Jesus saves us from the power of sin. And Jesus saves us, which we will experience one day soon, even from the presence of sin. 
Joseph was a joyful man. Number four. And here we'll see that God has a miraculous solution to our deepest problems. Well, folks, here you have it. Every reason you need to reject the story of Jesus. A virgin shall conceive? I don't think so. We all know that this isn't how it works. Right here at the conception of Jesus, you can turn your back on him and say, that's impossible and everyone knows it. I guess it's your prerogative if you want to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ on these grounds. Many have. But consider where that leaves you. You must rely now on naturalistic solutions to your deepest problems. You're depressed and saturated in guilt. What's your naturalistic solution going to be? Drugs? Alcohol? Where does that road lead? For me, my problem is too big. I have a sin nature which is bent towards sin. Before I encountered Jesus, I lived almost incessantly with guilt. My guilt was not something I could hear or see or smell or taste. I couldn't measure it with a ruler or weigh it on a scale. Therefore, I knew it didn't have a physical solution. I needed a supernatural solution. If I would have rejected the supernatural conception of Christ, I would have had no solution at all. People also don't naturally rise from the dead. If I would have rejected the supernatural resurrection of the Lord Christ, I also would have had no solution at all. And so, with the deepest gratitude, I rejoice in the supernatural conception of Jesus Christ. The Savior I needed had a conception that wasn't like anyone else's. It was a miracle. My sin and my guilt needed a miracle. And that miracle is the conception, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew, in the first of many, many times that he quotes the Old Testament scriptures, says that this virgin-born boy would be called by a very special name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The scripture couldn't be clearer in telling us that the son born to Mary that night so long ago was God himself come among us, entering the world he created as a helpless babe. When he cried out in hunger, and surely he did, when he cried out in hunger so that his mother, Mary, might come and comfort him and feed him, the voice she heard was the infant voice of the same one who so many millennia ago cried out, let there be light. And there was light at the dawn of the universe. It is hard for me to wrap my mind around. And he came so that he could one day save us from our sins. Finally, Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. 
and we'll look at the importance of having a real encounter with the Lord. Joseph's encounter with the Lord left no room for doubt. He did not wake up from his dream and wonder, was that just a dream? Like Charles Dickens writes of Scrooge, was, was that just a, a bit of bacon or some bad gravy I had last night? That was not Matthew's experience. He didn't wake up wondering, was that just a dream? He knew that he had had an encounter with the Lord. So all that remained was whether he was going to be obedient. This Christmas season, my prayer is that many of us will also know that we have had an encounter with the living God and his, internal, his eternal son, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. There is something special and powerful that takes place when the Spirit of God moves in our hearts. It's unmistakable. All that remains is whether we will be obedient or not. If we are, God can make the best of our messed up and painful situation as he did for Joseph. He can shine his light in where natural light cannot reach. And even in the midst of often seemingly hopeless and dark times, we get glimmers of joy and hope, knowing that he who entered our dark world so long ago with his miraculous light will never leave us nor forsake us. And they called his name Jesus. The Lord is salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this morning once again. Celebrate the birth of your only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we all in this room need an encounter with you. And what better time than now when we are reflecting on how deeply you humbled yourself because you loved us. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in every heart in this room so that we can have a powerful and unmistakable encounter with God, the creator of the universe, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins. Lord, help this, the remainder of this season, to be one in which we focus exclusively on our Savior. There may be those in this room that have never had that powerful and unmistakable encounter with you. I ask that they would have it this morning, even now, that they can walk out of this room cleansed of sin and free of guilt with eternal life. Father, for the rest of us that have already had this powerful and unmistakable experience, remind us, we are so forgetful. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what you have done. Remind us of your love for us and help us to reflect that love back because of Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for each person here. Go from this place with us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah. Amen.